Chapter 7. The Scar And so I was handed over to Odysseus like a package of meat, a package of meat in a wrapping of gold, mind you, a sort of gilded blood pudding. But perhaps that is too crude a simile for you. Let me add that meat was highly valued amongst us. The aristocracy ate lots of it. Meat, meat, meat. And all they ever did was roast it. Ours was not an age of hot cuisine. Oh, I forgot. There was also bread. Flat bread, that is. Bread, bread, bread. And wine, wine, wine. We did have the odd fruit or vegetable, but you've probably never heard of these because no one put them into the songs much. The gods wanted meat as much as we did, but all they ever got from us was the bones and fat. Thanks to a bit of rudimentary slay of hand, sleight of hand by Prometheus, only an idiot would have been deceived by a bag of cow of bad cow parts disguised as good ones. And Zeus was deceived, which goes to show that the gods were not always as intelligent as they wanted us to believe. I can say this now because I'm dead. I wouldn't have dared to say it earlier. You could never tell when one of the gods might be listening, disguised as a beggar or as an old friend or a stranger. It's true that I sometimes doubted their existence, these gods, but during my lifetime I considered it prudent not to take any risks. There was lots of everything at my wedding feast, great glistening hunks of meat, great wads of fragrant fragrant bread, great flagons of mellow wine. It was amazing that the guests didn't burst on the spot. They stuffed themselves so full. Nothing helps gluttony among, along as, so well as eating food you don't have to pay for yourself, as I learned from later experience. We ate with our hands in those days. There was a lot of gnawing and some heavy-duty chewing. But it was better that way. No sharp utensils that could be snatched at up and plunged into a fellow guest who might have annoyed you. At any wedding preceded by the contests, there were bound to be a few sore losers, but no unsuccessful suitor lost his temper at my feast. It was like more as if they failed to win an auction for a house. Horse. The wine was mixed too strong, so there were many fuddled head heads. Even my father, King Icarus, got quite drunk. He'd suspected he'd had had played had a trick played on him by Tyndareus or and Odysseus. He was almost sure they'd cheated, but he couldn't figure out how they'd done it. And this made him angry. And when he was angry, he drank even more and dropped in dropped insulting comments about people's grandparents. But he was king, so there were no jewels. Odysseus himself did not get drunk. He had a way of appearing to drink a lot without actually doing it. He told me later that if a man lives by his wits as he did, he needs to have those wits always at hand to keep sharp and kept sharp like axes or swords. Only fools, he said, were given to bragging about how much they could drink. It was bound to lead to swilling competitions and then to inatten inattention and the loss of one's powers. And that would be where your enemy would strike. As for me, I couldn't eat a thing. I was too nervous. I sat there shrouded in my brow veil, hardly daring to glance at Odysseus. I was certain he would be disappointed at me once he had lifted the veil and made 
his way in through the cloak and girdle and the shimmering robe in which I'd been decked out. But he wasn't looking at me and neither was anyone else. They were all staring at Helen, who was dispensing dazzling smiles right and left, not missing a single man. She had a way of smiling that made each one of them feel that secretly she was in love with him alone. I suppose it was lucky that Helen was distracting everyone's attention because it kept them from noticing me in my trembling and awkwardness. I wasn't just nervous, I was really afraid. The maids had been filling my ears with tales about how once I was in the bridal chamber I would be torn apart as the earth is by the plough and how painful and humiliating that would be. As for my mother, she'd stopped swimming around like a porpoise long enough to attend my wedding, for which I was less grateful than I thought than I ought to have been. There she sat on her throne besides my father robed in cool blue, a small puddle gathering at her feet. She did make a little speech to me as the maids were changing my costume yet again, but I didn't consider it to be helpful at one at the time. It was nothing if not oblique. And then, but then all naiads are oblique. Here's what she said. Water does not resist. Water flows. When you're plunged into your, when plun, you plunge your hand into it, all you feel is a caress. Water is not a solid wall. It will not stop you, but water goes where, and it goes where it wants to go, and nothing in the end can stand against it. Water is patient. Dripping water wears away a stone. Remember that, my child. Remember that you are half water. You can't go through an obstacle. You go around it. Water does. After the ceremonies and the feasting, there was a usual procession to the bridal chamber with the usual torches and vulgar jokes and drunken yelling. The bed had been garlanded, the threshold sprinkled and libations poured. The gatekeeper had been posted to keep the bride from rushing out in horror and to stop her friends from breaking down the door and rescuing her from when they heard her scream. All of this was play acting. The fiction was that the bride had been stolen and the consummation of a marriage was supposed to be a sanctioned rape. It was supposed to be a conquest, a trampling of a foe, a mocking killing, a mock killing. There was supposed to be blood. Once the door had been closed, Odysseus took me by the hand and sat me down on the bed. Forget everything you've been told, he whispered. I'm not going to hurt you or not very much. But it would help us both if you could pretend. I've been told you're a clever girl. Do you think you could manage a few screams? That will satisfy them. They're listening at the door. And then they'll leave us in peace and we can take our time to become friends. This was one of his great, his greatest secrets as a persuader. He could convince another person that the two of them together faced a common obstacle and that they needed to join forces in order to overcome it. He could draw almost any listener into a collaboration, a little conspiracy of his own making. Nobody could do better than he, he. For once, the stories don't lie. And he had a wonderful voice as well, deep and seronious. Of course, I did as he asked. Somewhat later, I found that Odysseus was not one of those men who, after the fact, simply rolled over and began to snore. Not that I'm aware of this common male habit through my own experience but as I've said I've listened to a lot of maids. No Odysseus wanted to talk and he was an excellent raconteur. I was happy to listen. I think 
This is what he valued most in me, my ability to appreciate his stories. It's an un underrated talent in a woman. I had occasion... I had occasion to notice the long scar on his thigh, and so he proceeded to tell me the story of how he got it. As I've already mentioned, his grandfather was Autocleus, who claimed the god Hermes was his father. That may have been a way of saying that he was a crafty old thief, cheat and a liar, and that luck had favoured him in these kinds of activities. Autocleus was the father of Odysseus's mother, and Tilicia, who married King Laertes of Ithaca, and was more, therefore now my mother-in-law. There was a slanderous item going around about Antislia. She had been seduced by Sisyphilus, who was the true father of Odysseus, but I found it difficult to believe, as who would want to seduce Antilicia? It, like, it would be like seducing a prow, but let the tale stand for the moment. Sisyphus was a man so strict, tricky that he was said to have cheated death twice, once by fooling King Hades into putting on handcuffs that Sisyphus refused to unlock, once by taking Persephone into letting, talking Persephone into letting him out of the underworld because she, he hadn't been properly buried and thus didn't belong on the dead side of the river Styx. So if we admit the rumour about Antislia in in Tislia's infidelity, Odysseus had crafty and unscrupulous men on two of the main branches of his family tree. Whatever the truth is, his grandfather Autocleus, who named him, who named him, invited Odysseus to Mount Parnassus to collect the gifts promised promised him at his birth. Odysseus did pay the visit during which he went boar hunting with the sons of Autocleus. It was particularly for a particularly ferocious boar that had gored him on the thigh and given him the scar. There was something in the way of way Odysseus told the story that made me suspect, suspect there was more to it. Why had the boar savaged Odysseus but not the others? Had they known where the boar was hiding? Had they led him into a trap? Was Odysseus meant to die so that Autocleus, the cheat, wouldn't have had to hand over the gifts he owed, perhaps? Unlike, I like to think so. I like to think I had something in common with my husband. Both of us had almost been destroyed in our youth by family members. All the more reason that we should stick together and not be too quickly quick to trust others. In return for his story about the scar, I told Odysseus my own story about almost drowning and being rescued by ducks. He was interested in it, and he made he asked me questions about it, and was sympathetic, everything you wish, would wish a listener to be. My poor duckling, he said, stroking me, don't worry, I would never throw such a precious girl into the ocean. At which point, I did some more weeping, and I was comforted in ways that were suitable f for a wedding night. So by the time the morning came, Odysseus and I were indeed friends, as Odysseus had promised we would be. Or, let me put it in another way, I myself had developed friendly feelings towards him. More than that, loving and passionate ones, and he behaved as if he reciprocated them, which is not quite the same thing. After some days he had passed, Odysseus announced his intention of taking me and my dowry back with him to Ithaca. My father was annoyed by this and wanted the old custom kept, he said, which meant that the, 
he wanted both of us and our newly gained wealth right under his thumb. But we had the support of Uncle Tyndarius, whose son-in-law was Helen's husband, the powerful Menelaus. So Ithaca had to be had to back down. You've probably heard that my father ran after our departing chariot, begging me to stay with him, and that Odysseus asked me if I was going to Ithaca with him to pull of of my own free will, or did I prefer to remain with my father? I said that in answer. I pulled down my veil, being too modest to proclaim my words in words my desire for my husband, and that a statue was later erected of me in tribute to the virtue of modesty. There's some truth to this story, but I pulled down my veil to hide the fact that I was laughing. You have to admit there was something humorous about a father who'd once tossed his child into the sea, capering down the road after that very child and calling, stay with me. I didn't feel like staying at that moment. I could hardly wait to get away from the Spartan court. I hadn't been very happy there and I'd longed to begin my, a new life. Chapter 8. A Chorus Line. If I was a princess, a popular tune. As performed by the maids with a findle, an accordion and a penny whistle. First maid. If I was a princess with silver and gold and loved by a hero, I'd never grow old. Oh, if a young hero came and marrying me, I'd always be beautiful, happy and free. Chorus. Then sail, my fine lady, on the billowing wave. The water below you is dark as the grave. And maybe you'll sink in your little blue boat. It's hope and hope only that keeps us afloat. Second maid. I fetch and I carry, I hear and obey. It's yes, sir, and no, ma'am, the whole bleeding day. I smile and I nod with a tear in my eye. I make the soft beds in which others do lie. Third maid. O gods and O prophets, please alter my life and let a young hero take me for his wife. But no hero comes to me early or late. Hard work is my destiny, death is my fate. Chorus. Then sail, my fine lady, on the billowing wave. The water below is as dark as a grave. And maybe you'll sink in your little blue boat. It's hope and only and hope only that keeps us afloat. The maids all curtsy. Methlano of the pe pretty cheeks passing the hat. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Chapter 9. The Trusted Cackle Hen The sea voyage to Ithaca was long and frightening and also nauseating, or at least I found it so. I spent most of the time lying down or throwing up, sometimes both at once. Possibly I had an aversion to the ocean due to my childhood experience or possibly the sea god Poseidon was still annoyed by his failure to devour me. Thus, I saw little of the beauties of sky and cloud that Odysseus reported on his rare visits to see how I was feeling. He spent most of the time either at the bow, peering ahead, I imagined, with a hawk-like gaze in order to spot rocks and sea serpents and other dangers, or at the tiller, or directing the ship in some way or in some other way. I didn't know how because I'd never been on a ship before in my life. I gained a great opinion of Odysseus since our wedding day and admired him immensely and had an inflated notion of his capabilities. Remember, I was 15. 
So I had the highest confidence in him and considered him to be a sea captain who could never fail. At last we arrived at Ithaca and sailed into the harbour, which was surrounded by steep rocky cliffs. They must have posted lookouts and lit beacons to announce our approach because the harbour was thronged with people. A certain amount of cheering went on and a lot of jostling amongst those who wanted to see what I looked like and as I was led ashore. Visible proof of the fact that Odysseus had succeeded in his mission and had brought back a noble bride and the valuable gifts that came with her. That night there was a feast for the aristocrats of the town. I appeared at it wearing a shining veil and one of the best embroidered robes I had brought with me and accompanied by the, a ma the maid I had also brought. She was a wedding present to me from my father. Her name was Actorius, and she was not at all happy to be there in Ithaca with me. She hadn't wanted to leave the luxuries of the Spartan palace and her friends amongst the servants, and I didn't blame her. As she was not at all young, even my father would not have been so stupid as to send a blooming girl with me. A possible rival for Odysseus's affections, especially since one of her tasks was to stand sentinel every night outside our bedroom door to prevent interruptions. She did not last long. Her death left me alone in Ithaca, a strange a stranger amongst strange people. I did a lot of secluded weeping in those early days. I tried to conceal my unhappiness from Odysseus, as I did not wish to appear unappreciative, and. He himself continued to be as attentive and considerate as he'd been at first, although his manner was that of an older person to a child. I often caught him studying me, head on one side, chin in hand, as if I were a puzzle, but that was his habit with all I soon discovered. He told me once that everyone had a hidden door, which was the way into the heart, and that it was a point of honour with him to be able to find the handles to those doors. For the heart was both was both key and lock, and he would who could master the hearts of men and learn their secrets was well on their way to mastering the fates and controlling the thread of his own destiny. Not, he hastened to add, that any man could really do that, not even the gods, he said, were more powerful than the three fatal sisters. He did not mention them by name, but spat to avoid bad luck. And I shivered to think of them in their glum caves, spinning our lives, measuring them, cutting them off. Do I have a hidden door in my heart? I asked in what I'd hoped was a wish, winsome and flirtatious manner. And have you found it? At this, Odysseus only smiled. That is for you to tell me. And do you have a door in your heart as well? I said, and have I found the key? I blushed to recall the simpering tone in which I asked this. It was the kind of weird, weirdling Helen might have done, but Odysseus had turned and looked out of the window. A ship has entered the harbour, he said. It's not one I know. He was frowning. Are you expecting news? I asked. I'm always expecting news, he said. Ithaca was no paradise. It was often windy and frequently rainy and cold. The nobles were a shabby lot compared to those I was used to, and the palace, although sufficient, was not what you would consider large. There were indeed a lot of rocks and goats, as I'd been told back home, but there were cows as well, and sheep and pigs, 
and grain to make bread, and sometimes a pear or an apple or a fig in season. So we were well supplied at table, and in time I got more used to the place. Also, to have a husband like Odysseus was no mean thing. Everyone in the region looked up to him, and petitioners and those seeking his advice were numerous. Some even came in ships from far away to consult him, as he had a reputation as a man who could undo any complicated knot, though sometimes a bit by tying a more complicated one. His father, Laertes, and his mother, Anticlea, were still in the palace at the time. His mother had not died yet, worn out by watching and waiting for Odysseus to return, and I suspect by her own Blyas digestive system, and his father had not yet quitted the palace in despair of his son's absence to live in a hovel and penalise himself by farming. All of that would happen once Odysseus had been gone for years, but there was no foreshadowing of it yet. My mother-in-law was circumspect. She was a prune-mouthed woman, and though she gave me a formal welcome, I could tell she didn't approve of me. She kept saying that I was certainly very young. Odysseus remarked dryly that this was a fault that would correct itself in time. The woman who gave me the most trouble at first was Odysseus's former nurse, Eurycleia. She was widely respected, according to her, because she was so intensely reliable. She'd been in the household ever since Odysseus's father had brought her, and so highly had he valued her that he hadn't even slept with her. Imagine that for a slave woman, she clucked to me, delighted with herself, and I was very good looking in those days. Some of the maids told me that Laertes had refrained not out of respect for Eurycleia, but from fear of his wife, who would never have given him any peace if he had taken a concubine. That Antislia would freeze the balls of Helois, as one of them put it. I knew I should should have reprimanded her for imprudence, but I couldn't repress my laughter. Eurycleia made a point of taking me under her wing, lending me about the palace to show me where things, where everything was, and, as she kept saying, how we do things here. I ought to have thanked her for it, with my heart as well as my lips, for there is nothing more embarrassing than to make a slip of manners, thus displaying your ignorance of the custom of those around you. Whether to cover your mouth, the mouth of when you laugh, or what occasions to wear a veil, how much of the face should be should be concealed, how, of, how often to order a bath. Eurycleia was an expert on all such matters. That was lucky for my mother-in-law, Antislia, who ought to have taken charge of it in this way, was content to sit silently and say nothing while I made a fool of myself, a tight little smile on her face. She was happy that he adored that her adored son Odysseus had pulled off such a coup, a princess of Sparta, but was not to be sneezed at. But I think she would have been better pleased if I died of sickness on the way to Ithaca and Odysseus had arrived home with the bridal presence, but not the bride. Her most frequent expression to me was, you don't look well. So I avoided her when I could and went out with a, Eurycleia, who was at least friendly. She had 
a fund of information about all the neighbouring noble families, and in that way I'd learned a great many discreet, discreditable things about them that would be useful to me later on. She talked all the time, and nobody was the world's expert on Odysseus the way she was. She was full of information about what he liked and how he'd had been treated, for hadn't she nursed him at her own breast and tended to him when she was when he was an infant and brought him up as a youth? Nobody but she'd made him must have give, must give him his baths, oil his shoulders, prepare his breakfast, lock up his valuables, lay out his robes for him, and so on and so forth. She left me with nothing to do. No little office I might perform for my husband, for if I tried to carry out any small wifely task, she would be right there to tell me that how Odysseus liked things done. Even the robes I made for him were not quite right. Too light, too heavy, too sturdy, too flimsy. It will do well enough for the steward, she would say, but surely not for Odysseus. Nonetheless, she tried to be kind to me in her own way. We'll have to fatten you up she would say, so you can have a nice big son for Odysseus. That's your job. You just leave everything else to me. As she was the nearest thing, there was to someone I could talk to, besides Odysseus, that is. I came to accept her in time. She didn't make herself invaluable when Telemachus was, Telemachus was born. I am on a bound to record that. She said the prayers to Artemis when I was too, in too much pain to speak. And she held my hands and sponged off my forehead and caught the baby and washed washed him and wrapped him up warmly. For if there was one thing she knew, as she kept telling me, it was babies. She had a special language for them, a no nonsense language. Uzi woo, she would croon, croon to Telemachus when drying him after his birth. A google woogle poo. And it unsettled me to think of my barrel-chested and deep-voiced Odysseus, so skilled in persuasion, so articulate, so dignified, as an infant lying in her arms and having this gloping discourse addressed to him. But I couldn't begrudge her, her the care she took of Telemachus. Her delight in him was boundless. You'd almost have thought she'd given birth to him herself. Odysseus was pleased with me. Of course he was. Helen hasn't borne a son yet he said, which ought to have made me glad, and it did. But on the other hand, why was he, why was he still and possibly always talk, thinking about Helen? Chapter 10, The Chorus Line, The Birth of Telemachus, An Idol Nine months he sailed the wine-red seeds of his mother's blood out of the cave of dreaded night of sleep, of troubling dreams he sailed, in his frail dark boat, the boat of himself, through the dangerous ocean of his vast mother he sailed, from the distant cave where the threads of men's lives are spun, then measured and then cut short by the three fatal sisters intent on their gruesome handcrafts, and the lives of women also are twisted into the strand, and we, the twelve whoever who were later to die by his hand, at his father's relentless command, sailed as well in the fra dark frail boats of ourselves through the turbulent seas of our swollen and sore-footed mothers, who were not royal queens but a motley and piebald collection brought traded, captured, kidnapped from serfs and strangers, 
After the nine months voyage, we came to shore, beached at the same time as he, struck by the hostile air. Infant, infants when he was an infant, wailing just as he wailed, helpless as he was helpless, but ten times more helpless as well. For his birth was longed for and feasted, as our births were not. His mother presented a life, a priceling. Our various mothers formed merely lambed, farrowed, littered, fold, whelped and kittened, brooded, hatched, out their clutch. We were animal young to be disposed of at will, sold, drowned in the well, traded, used, discarded when bloomless. He was fathered, we simply appeared, like the crocus, the rose, the sparrows in in gendered in mud. Our lives were twisted in his life. We also were children when he was a child. We were his pets and his toy things, mock sisters, his tiny companions. We grew as he grew, laughed also, ran as he ran, through sandier, hungrier, sun-speckled, most days meatless. He saw us as rightfully his, for whatever purpose he chose, to tend him and feed him, to wash him, amuse him, rock him to sleep in the dangerous boats of us ourselves. We did not know as we played with him there in the sand, on the beach of our rocky goat island, close by the harbour, that he was foredoomed to swell to our cold-eyed teenage killer. If we had known that, we would have drowned him back then. Young children are ruthless and selfish. Everyone wants to live. Twelve against one, he wouldn't have stood a chance, would we? In only a minute when nobody else was looking. Pushed his little innocent child's head under the water. With our own still innocent childish nurse made hands. And blamed it on our way, on the waves. Would we have had it in us? Asked the three sisters spinning their blood red ma mazes tangling the lives of men and women together. Only they know how events might have been altered. Only they know our hearts. From us you will get no answers. Chapter 11. Helen ruins my life. After a time I became more accustomed to my new home, although I had a little authority within it. What with Eurycleia and my mother-in-law running all domestic matters and making all household decisions. Odysseus was in control of the kingdom, naturally, with his father Laertes, sticking his oar in front of, in front time to time, either to dispute his son's decisions or to back them up. In other words, there was a standard family push and pull over whose words was to carry the most weight. All were agreed one on one thing. It was not mine. Dinner times were particularly stressful. There were too many undercurrents, too many sulks and growlings on the part of the man, men and far too many fraught silences encircling my mother-in-law. When I tried to speak to her, as she would never look at me while answering but would address her remarks to a full stool or a table. As benefited conversation with the furniture, these remarks were wooden and stiff. I soon found it more peaceful just to keep out of things and to confide myself to caring for Telemachus. Well, when 
Euryclea would let me. You're barely more than a child yourself, she would say, snatching my baby out of my hands. Here, I'll tend the little darling for a while. You run along and enjoy yourself. But I did not know how to do that. Strolling along the cliffs or by the shore alone like some peasant girl or slave was out of the question. Whenever I put out, went out, I had to take two of the maids with me. I had a reputation to keep up and the reputation of a king's wife is under constant scrutiny. But they stayed several paces behind me as was fitting. I felt like a prize horse on parade walking in my fancy robes while sailors stared at me and townswomen whispered. I had no friend of my own age and station, so these excursions were not very enjoyable, and for that reason they became rarer. Sometimes I would sit in the courtyard, twisting wool into, into thread and listening to the maids laughing and singing and giggling in the outbuildings as they went about their chores. When it was raining, I would take my weaving into the woman's quarters. There at least I would have company as a number of slaves were always at work on the looms. I enjoyed weaving up to a point. It was slow and rhythmical and soothing and nobody, even my mother-in-law, could accuse me of sitting idle while I was doing it. Not that she ever said a word to that effect, but there is such a thing as silent accusation. I stayed in our room a lot, the room I shared with Odysseus. It was a fine enough room with a view of the sea, though not so fine as my room back in Sparta. Odysseus had made a special bed in it one of the posts in which was wilted from an olive tree and had its roots still in the ground. That way, he said, no one would ever be able to move or displace the, hit this bed and it would be a lucky omen for any child conceived there. This bed post of this was a great secret. No one knew about it except for Odysseus himself and my maid, Actorus, but she was dead now, and myself. If the word got around about this post, he said Odysseus in a mock sinister manner, he would know that I'd been sleeping with some other man and that, he said, frowning at me in what was supposed to be a playful way, he would be very cross indeed. And he would have to chop me into little pieces with his sword or hang me from the roof beam. I pretended to be frightened and I said I would never, never think of betraying his big post. Actually, I was really frightened. Nevertheless, our best times were spent on that bed. Once he'd fin we'd finished he'd finished making love, Odysseus would always like to talk to me. He told me many stories about that, about himself, true, and his hunting exploits and his looting expeditions and his special bow that nobody could but he could string and how he'd always been favoured by the goddess Athene because of his inventive mind and his skill at disguises and stratagems and so on. But other stories as well how there came to be a curse on the house of Atreus and how Perseus obtained the hat of invisibility from Hades and cut off the loathsome Gorgon's head and how the renowned Theseus and his pal Petruthius had abducted my cousin Helen when she, she was less than 12 years old and hidden her away with the intent of cast, casting lots to see which of them would marry her when she was old enough. Theseus didn't rape her as he might otherwise have done because she was only a child, or so it was said, but she was rescued by her two brothers, not before they wa waged a successful war against Athens to get her back. This was a story I already knew, as I'd heard from Helen herself. It sounded quite different when she told it. Her story was 
about how Theseus and Patrithius were both so in awe of her divine beauty that they grew faint whenever they looked at her and could barely come close enough to clasp her knees and beg for forgiveness for their audacity. The part of the story she enjoyed the most was the number of men who died in the Athenian war. She took their deaths as tribute to herself. The sad fact is, is that people had praised her so often and lavished her with so many gifts and adjectives that it had turned her head. She thought she could do anything she wanted, just like the gods from whom she was conceived. She was descended. I've often wondered whether if Helen had been so puffed up with vanity, she might have been spared the sufferings and sorrows she had brought down on, on our heads by her selfishness and her deranged lust. Why couldn't she have led a normal life? But no, normal lives were boring and Helen was ambitious. She wanted to make a name for herself. She longed to stand out from the herd. When Telemachus was a year old, disaster struck. It was because of Helen, as all the world knows by now. The first we heard of the impending catastrophe was from the captain of our Spartan ship that had been docked in our harbour. The ship was on voyage around our outlying islands, buying and selling slaves, and was unusual with guests of certain status. We entertained the captain to dinner and put him up overnight. Such visitors were a welcome source of news. Who had died, who'd been born, who was recently married, who'd killed someone in a duel, and who had sacrificed their own child to some god or another. But this man's news was extraordinary. Helen, he said, had run away with the prince with the prince of Troy. This fellow, Paris, was his name. When a young son of the king Priam, and was understood to be understood to be a very good looking. It was first at love it was love at first sight, for nine days of feasting laid on by Melenius, because of the prince's high standards. Paris and Helen had made moon eyes at each other behind the back of Melenius, who hadn't noticed a thing. That didn't surprise me because the man was thick as a brick and had his manners had the manners of a stump. No doubt he hadn't stroked Helen's vanity enough, so she was right for someone who would. Then when Melanius had to go away for a, to a funeral, the two lovers had simply loaded up Paris's ship with as much gold and silver as they could carry and slipped away. Melanius was now in a red rage and was so and so was his brother, Agamemnon, because of the slight to the family honour. They'd sent in mercenaries to Troy, demanding the return of both Helen and the plunder, but these had come back empty-handed. Meanwhile, Paris and the wicked Helen were laughing at them from behind the lofty walls of Troy. It was quite the business, said our guest, with evident relish. Like all of us, he enjoyed it when, a high, when the high and mighty fell flat on their faces. Everyone was talking about it, he said. As he went listening to his account, Odysseus went white, though he remained silent. That night, however, he revealed to me that because of his distress, we've all sworn an oath, he said. We swore it to the parts of, of a cut-up sacred horse, so it's a powerful one. Every man who swore it will now be called on to defend the rights of Melanius and sail off to Troy and wage war to get Helen back, he said. He said it wouldn't be easy. Troy was a great power, a much harder nut to crack than Athens had been when Helen's brothers had devastated it from this, for the same reason. I repressed a die to say that Helen should have been, been kept in a long, 
locked trunk in a dark cellar because she was poison on legs. Instead, I said, will you have to go? It was I was devastated at the thought of having to stay in Ithaca without Odysseus. What joy would, would be there for me, alone in the palace? By alone, you will understand that I mean without friends or allies. There would be no midnight pleasures to counterbalance the bossiness of Eurycleia and the freezing silences of my mother-in-law. I swore an oath, said Odysseus. In fact, that oath was my idea. It will be difficult for me to get out of it now. Nevertheless, he did try. When Agamemnon and Melenius turned up, as they were bound to do, along with the fateful third man, Palamides, who was no fool like not like the others, Odysseus was ready for him. He'd spread a story about around that he'd gone mad, and to back it up, he put on a ridiculous peasant's hat and was ploughing with an ox and a donkey and sowing the fury furrows with salt. I thought I was being very clever when I offered to accompany the three visitors to the field to witness this pitiful sight. You'll see, I said weeping, he no longer recognised me or even our little son. I carried the baby along with me to make the point. It was Palamides who found that Odys who found Odysseus out. He grabbed Telemachus from my arms and put him right down in front of, of the team. Odysseus had either, either had to turn aside or run over his own son. So then he had to go. The other three flattered him by saying an oracle had decreed that Troy would not fall without his help. That eased his preparations for departure naturally. Which of us can resist the temptation of being thought as indispensable? Chapter 12. Waiting. What can I tell you about the next ten years? Odysseus sailed away to Troy. I stayed in Ithaca. The sun rose, travelled across the sky, set. The only some only sometimes did I think of it as a flaming chariot of Herlois. The moon did the same, changing from face to face. Only sometimes did I think of it as a silver boat of Artemis. Spring, summer, fall, winter followed one another in their appointed rounds. Quite often the wind blew. Telemachus grew from year to year, eating a lot of meat indulged by all. We had news of how the war with Troy was going. Sometimes well, sometimes badly. Minstrels sang songs about the noble heroes, notable heroes. Achilles, Ajax, Agamemnon, Melanius, Hector, Aeneas, and the rest. I didn't care about them. I waited only for news of Odysseus. When would he come back and relieve my boredom? He too appeared in the songs and I re relished those moments. There he was making an inspiring speech. Here he was uniting the quarrelling fractions. There he was inventing an astonishing falsehood. There he was delivering sage advice. There he was dis disguising himself as a runaway slave and sneaking into Troy and speaking with Helen herself, who the song proclaimed, had bathed him and anointed him with her very own hands. I wasn't so fond of that part. Finally, there he was concocting the stratagem of the wooden horse filled with soldiers. And then the, flat, the news flashed from beacon to beacon. Troy had fallen. There were reports of the great slaughtering and looting in the city. The streets ran red with blood. The sky above the palace turned to fire. Innocent boy children were thrown off a cliff and the Trojan women were parceled out. At, as plunder. King Priam's daughters among them. 
And then finally, the hope, the hoped-for news arrived. Well, the Greek, ship, Greek ships had set sail for home, and then nothing. Day after day, I would climb up to the top floor of the palace and look out over the harbour. Day after day, there was no sign. Sometimes there were ships, but never the ship I longed to see. Rumours came carried by the ships. Odysseus and his men had gotten drunk at their first port of call, and the men had mutinied, and some, no, said others, they'd eaten a magic plant that had caused them to lose their memories, and Odysseus had saved them by shape, having them tied up and carried onto the ships. Odysseus had been in a fight with a giant one-eyed cyclops, and some, no, it was only a one-eyed tavern keeper, said the other, and the fight was over a non-payment of a bill. Some of the men had been eaten by cannibals and, and said some. No, it was just a brawl of the usual kind and others were ear bitings with ear bitings and nosebleeds and stabbings and inviscerations. Odysseus was the guest of a goddess on an enchanted isle, said some. She turned his men into pigs. Not a hard job in my view, but had turned them back into men because she'd fallen in love with him and was feeding him unheard of delicacies prepared by her own immortal hands. And the two of them made love deliriously every night. No, said others, it was just an expensive whorehouse and he was sponging off the madam. Needless to say, the minstrels took up these themes and embroidered them considerably. They, were, they always sang the noblest versions in my presence, the ones in which Odysseus was clever, brave and resourceful and battling supernatural monsters and beloved, beloved by goddesses. The only reason he hadn't come back was that a god, the sea god, Poseidon, according to some, was all against him because of that of the Cyclops. Because a Cyclops crippled by Odysseus was his son, or several gods were against him or the fates, or something. For surely the minstrels implied by the way of praising me, only a strong divine power could keep my husband from rushing back as quickly as possible into my loving and lovely wifely arms. The more thickly they laid it on, the more costly were the gifts they expected from me. I always complied. Even an obvious fabrication is some comfort when you have few others. My mother-in-law died, wrinkled up like drying mud, and sickened by an excess of waiting, convinced that Odysseus would never return. In her mind, this was my fault, not Helen's. If only I hadn't carried the baby to the ploughing ground. Old Eurycleia got even older. So did my father-in-law, Laertes. He lost interest in palace life and went off to the countryside to rummage around on one, one of his farms, where he could be spotted scrambling, shambling there in grubby clothing and muttering about pear trees. I suspected he was going soft in the head. Now I was running the vast estates of Odysseus by myself. In no, no way had I been prepared for such a task. During my early life in Sparta, I was a princess, after all, and work was what other people did. My mother, although she'd been a queen, had not set a good example. She didn't care for the kinds of meals favoured in the Grand Palace. Since big chunks of meat were the main feature, she preferred, at the very most, a small fish or two with seaweed garnish. She had a manner of eating the fish raw, head first, an activity I would watch with chilled fascination. 
Have I forgotten to tell you that she'd rather she had rather small pointed teeth? She disliked ordering the slaves around and punishing them, though she might suddenly kill one who was annoying her. She failed to understand that they had value as property. And she had no use for all the weaving and spinning. Too many knots. A spider's work. Leave it to Arcane, she'd say. As for the chore of supervising the food supplies and the wine cellar and what she called the mortal people's golden toys that were kept in the vast storehouses of the palace, she merely laughed at the thought. Nyads can't count past three, she would say. Fish come in shoals, not lists. One fish, two fish, three fish, another fish, another fish, another fish. That's how we count them. She'd laugh her rippling laugh. We immortals are misers. We don't hoard. Such things are pointless. Then she'd slip off to it, take a dip in the palace's fountain. Or she'd vanish for days to tell jokes with the dolphins and play tricks on clams. So in the place of Ithaca, I had to learn from scratch. At first I was impeded by I impeded in this by Eurycelia, who wanted to be in charge of everything, but finally she realised that she was too much to, to be done and for the busybody busy body like her. As the years passed, I found myself making inventories where there are slaves, there's bound to be theft and you don't keep a sharp eye, if you don't keep a sharp eye out and planning the palace menus and wardrobes. Though slave garments were coarse they did fall apart after a while and had to be replaced so i needed to sell tell the spinners and weavers what to make the grinders of corn were on the low end of the slave hierarchy and were kept locked in the outbind building usually they were put in there for bad behavior and sometimes there were fights amongst them so i had to be aware of any animosities and vendettas the male slaves were not supposed to sleep with the female ones, not without permission. This could be a tricky issue. They sometimes fell in love and became jealous and got their jealous just like their betters, which could cause a lot of trouble. If that sort of thing got out of hand, I naturally had to sell them. But if a pretty child was born of these couplings, I would often keep it and rear it myself, teaching it to be a refined and pleasant servant. Perhaps I indulged some of these children too much. Eurycelia often said so. Melantho of the Pretty Cheeks was one of these. Through my steward, I traded for supplies and soon had a reputation as a smart bargainer. Through my foreman, I oversaw the farms and the flocks and made a point of learning about such things as lambing and calving and how to keep a sow from eating her farrow. As I gained expertise, I came to enjoy the conversations about such uncouth and dirty matters. It was a source of pride to me when my swine herd would come to me for advice. My policy was to build up the estates of Odysseus so we'd had, he'd have even more wealth when he came back than when he'd left. More sheep, more cows, more pigs, more fields of grain, more slaves. I had such a clear picture in my head. Odysseus returning and me with womanly modesty revealing to him how well I'd done at what was usually considered a man's business. On his behalf, of course, always for him, how his face would shine with pleasure, how pleased he would be with me, 
You're worth a thousand Helens, he would say, wouldn't he? And then he'd clasp me tenderly in his arms. <clears throat> Despite all of this busyness and responsibility, I felt more alone than ever. What wise counsellors did I have? Who could I depend on, really, except myself? Many nights I cried myself to sleep or prayed to the gods to bring me either my beloved husband or a speedy death. Eurystice, I would draw me a soothing vase and bring me comforting evening drinks, though these came with a price. She had an irksome habit of reciting folk sayings designed to stiffen my upper lip and encourage me, encourage me in my dedication and hard works as such. She who weeps when the sun's in the sky will never pile the platter high, or she who waits her time in moan will ne'er eat cow when it's grown, or mistress lazy, slaves get bold, will do not do what they are told, act the thief or whore or knave, spare the rod and spoil the slave, and more of that ilk. If she'd been younger, I would have slapped her. But her exhaustions must have had some effect because during the daytimes I managed to keep up the appearance of cheerful and hopeful, if not for myself, at least for Telemachus. I tell him stories of Odysseus, what a fine warrior he was, how clever, how handsome, and how wonderful everything would be once he, he got home again. There was an increasing amount of curiosity about me, as there was bound to be about the wife, or was it the widow, of such famous man foraging ships came to call with more frequency, bringing new rumours. They brought also the occasional feeler. If Odysseus were proved to have died, the gods forfend, might I perhaps be open to another, to other offers? Me and my treasures. I ignore these hints since news of my husband, dubious news but news, continued to arrive. Odysseus had been to the land of the dead to consult the spirits, Had some said some. No, He'd merely spent the night in a gloomy old cave full of bats, said others. He'd made his men put wax in their ears, said one, while sailing past the alluring sirens, half bird, half woman, who noticed men, enticed men to their island and then ate them. Though he'd tied himself to the mast so that he could listen to the irresistible singing without jumping overboard, no, said another, it was a high-class Sicilian knocking shop. The courtesans were there were known for their musical talents and their fancy feathered outfits. It was hard to know what to believe. Sometimes I thought people were making things up just to alarm me and to watch my eyes fill with tears. There is a certain zest to be had in tormenting the vulnerable. Any rumour was better than none, however, so I listened avidly to all. But after several more years, the rumour stopped coming altogether. Odysseus seemed to have had vanished from the face of the earth.